But now the righteous of God have been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteous of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, good morning. Uh, so good to see you. Uh, if you have your Bibles want to go to open, we're going to be in John chapter 10. This week, as you turn in there, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you chose to be here with us, whether maybe you're visiting family and friends, and so you're here with your parents or your siblings, or, um, or, or maybe um, people in your community group, they're gone this week because they traveled uh, to see their family um, out of town. But um, I hope it was a good weekend. But at the same time, I'm mindful. Thanksgiving is always an interesting week. Uh, I think it's... Um, potentially the closest glimpse we get to this reality of home. There's something about Thanksgiving that's unlike other holidays. To where it, maybe it's just because it's only about being together in the home with people that it really stands out. But there's probably one of two realities that you experienced in Thanksgiving this week. Either some of you, this idea of home, you long for it, you want it, yet you've never really experienced it. Like if we're honest, it's abating, it's elusive, maybe like years upon years, like decades where it's just stacked upon each other. There's just this debt now, and Thanksgiving is this reminder. This idea of home is rooted in you somewhere that you want it to be there, and yet you seem to never have what other people talk about. Or um, potentially, like it, this year was a really hard year. Like you used to have it, and this is the first year without someone that feels like home. They're, they're, they're gone, and you're walking through that. Or potentially it was a great year. Like maybe you had a great year, but the problem with home is it just never lasts. Like the sun always sets on that day. Like, no matter how good it is, like, people have to go home. And, and the reason I bring that up, I think this text is really going to draw this out, that there's this reality that Jesus, as he shepherds us, as he promises that he's the door, that there's this promise of a home that's coming. Like, the longing that we have in our heart, he put it there. Like, it, it reflects him. And so what we experience, what we celebrate, what we gather this morning in the word, it's leading to something. Like it's going somewhere, and he promises it's ours. And so we're going to unpack a lot of that in John chapter 10. That's kind of where we'll finish. There's some other pieces that John writes to us that we need to, to untangle as well. And so um, if you would, I'm just going to begin here at the beginning in verse 1, and, and we'll uh, begin together. So verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 10 say, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, in, the, in these first couple of verses, what's happening here, John's setting up, we see there's three parties involved. There's three particular groups of people that are involved at the beginning um, of these verses. And, and the first group is the thieves and robbers that Jesus identifies. They're the Pharisees, right? And so what does he say about this group? Well, he's saying that the Pharisees are like those who in their selfish use of the law and blindly in turn denying Jesus' grace act in a way that he describes as like a thief or a robber of sheep. Like Jesus illustrates this for us by he's creating this mental picture of what a first century sheepfold would have looked like. 
And if you're like me, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience, so I had to look that up. Like, it, but kind of common sense, right? And this time, different flocks, what happened is at nighttime, different flocks and different shepherds would bring their flocks together in this enclosed space in a city. Those either surrounded by a giant fence or, or by like a rock wall. And, th- and these were sheepfolds. They were safe places for flocks of sheep to dwell. Um, but the Pharisees, they don't enter the sheepfold by the door. Jesus says, for they come as one who climbs over the wall to take what's not theirs but also denying that which is the shepherd's then. So he's take, not only taking the sheep, but they're also taking them from the shepherd. In other words, this means then that the Pharisees, in their works, really shortened what was necessary in the law, right? Micah just talked about this. We can't keep the law. Um, but therefore, also cheapen the grace that Jesus kept repeating that they needed. And so as I was thinking about this, I, I talked with uh, um, this past week uh, an old friend, actually my godfather, who lives in Carmi, so... Uh, Bob Sykes, he uh, was connected with him, and, and, and so Bob played for the Cardinals back in the early 80s, late 70s, and was reminded of a, a story of his, so I asked his permission to tell it, because it's just a classic Bob story, and the way he tells it is way better, so maybe he can come here and tell it one day. But I guess it was a day after he had pitched, and he had like a bullpen session or something, but on that same day, um, the general manager used to host in, in Bush Stadium the St. Louis Marathon. He was a big marathon runner, I guess, and so before the day game, they would always finish the St. Louis Marathon with the winner. It would come run onto the field through the tunnel and run onto the infield, and the whole stadium would cheer. And so um, that was always the, the way it would go. And so the, over the PA system, the announcer would kind of keep tracks, like the winner six blocks away, five blocks away, three blocks away. And I guess Bob was standing there in the bullpen. And when he heard he was two blocks away, he had just finished, had the bright idea I'm going to pour water on myself, and when he gets to one block away, I'm going to jump over the fence, I'm going to climb over the wall, and I'm going to run through the tunnel, some of you are tracking what's happening here, as if I'm the winner of the St. Louis Marathon. And so he hears, like, the the runners in the building, and so he climbs the wall, shortens the work, right, and runs through the tunnel, 40,000 fans on their feet cheering for the winner, and he's running his hands above his head as the winner of the St. Louis Marathon. He said it was the most spectacular run through the outfield. He never experienced like running onto the field to pitch in a game. He said, but it quickly turned because as soon as the general manager who was there to welcome the winners, he ran through the line, he realized it was going to cost him dearly, right? Like the fine that he was about to pay. Um, Similar here. This is what's happening. Like the Pharisees, in reality, they were spiritually shortening the needed work. They're saying, oh, we'll keep the law, but they couldn't keep it. But they're trying to climb over the wall instead, and in doing so, they're denying the door and therefore cheapening the grace. I mean, he cheapened the race. They're cheapening the grace here. by They can't keep the law, but they're still trying to go in another way. This is why we just read Romans 3. Like the only way to salvation and life is through Christ, by his grace and by his blood. So we're going to see what that means today. That Jesus, he's the shepherd and the door. That we both have to follow him and, and go through him. But before Jesus expands on this, he once more deals a bit with the Pharisees. I know that's kind of been a theme that we've had in John, but he's had this long, drawn-out dialogue with the Pharisees. Like, and I hope you see how much he cares for them. I mean, he continues to enter in. Like, he yearns for them to know his grace. But at the same time, he's not afraid to tell them what's true. I mean, he calls the Pharisees out as robbers and thieves. And in verse 9, what we're going to get to, he, he warns about them again later. Chad next week is going to teach... Um, starting verse 11, he calls them wolves, even in that passage. The Pharisees, they, they were using Jesus' law. They were using his words. They were twisting them for their own gain. But they were also doing this at the expense of those that they led. And I think we have to take this warning here. Like John is wanting us to take warning and be on guard. 
And in fact, I think as Micah just said, the New Testament, it is full of warnings of wolves in sheep's clothing. Like there are people who teach or preach or proclaim or maybe even claim to be themselves pastors, yet they peddle a false gospel. And therefore they produce death not only in their own life, but lead to death and destruction on the many of whom they prey. Like, like the Bible teaches that pastors, real pastors, they feed sheep. But people like the Pharisees, predators, right? Wolves, they hunt them. And, and how do we see that they hunt? Like how do predators, how do the Pharisees, how do false teachers hunt? They're teaching a false gospel, right? Like what happens with what we see in the Bible, the Bible teaches that real pastors, and that's just another word for shepherd. Pastor is actually just another word for shepherd. Are called to feed sheep. This is what pastors do. In essence, pastors position the promises of God as recorded in the Bible at the center of the lives of those in their church. Like pastors, they love and serve people in and to the promises established in and by Jesus. And this also means that anything that would pull away or detract from, um, they, they, they push against because they guard that. And I think the reason this is so important important is because the reason or because the measure of the work of any pastor is not how they can skillfully maneuver their people for some metric of ministry success per se like like pawns on a board right that's not what pastors do they don't move their people just to have ministry success and and use them but rather the work of a pastor is to platform the word of god to the people in whom they serve and they belong to and then to platform the church that they belong to the communities that their church is in right that's what pastors do they tend, they feed, they care, they protect, they guard, but they ultimately point to Jesus. And then even before that, they primarily participate alongside, because at the end of the day, it's just the sheep as well, right? That's who pastors are. And false teachers are different. They prey on people. Like a good pastor would pray for his people to know Jesus, but Pharisees or wolves, their teaching is to prey on people. Like pastors are just sheep who help, or just sheep who help feed other sheep. But Pharisees are different. They preyed on them. They were wolves, and wolves don't eat what sheep eat. They, they eat them, right? I was reminded, like I've heard one pastor say before, like how do you know a wolf in sheep's clothing? Like how, how do you know? The Bible warns against that. And he said, by what they eat. He said, wolves eat sheep's. That's what the Pharisees did here. They used people just as they used God's word to their own glory, thinking it would be for their good. But guys, this is why Jesus came, right? Like, Jesus, he's different. Like, he loves his sheep. Like, get this, the sheep weren't merely a means for Jesus' ministry. They were the end of it, that he came for his sheep. That's why he came here, because he loves his sheep. And so that leads to the second group. We have, we have these predators, we have the Pharisees, right, the false teachers. But the second group in this passage we see here are sheep. They're those who belong to Jesus. So I was asking myself a question, because, like, if we're sheep, like, what does it mean to be a sheep, Right? That doesn't sound like a whole lot of a compliment at first. Like, you're a sheep. Like, oh, man, I'm encouraged. No, like, sheep, they're not known for their intelligence. They are dull and defenseless. Like, sheep are known just to wander off cliffs and fall to their death. Like, they're perfect prey for predators. Like, we, we, we talk about sitting ducks here sometimes, right? I've heard that said here. They're more vulnerable than that. Like, I think we should make, change the saying. It should be standing sheep because they're even more vulnerable. Like, they, nothing you can do. That's why you've never heard a sports team called the sheep. Like we got the Heron Tigers, the Marion Wildcats, the Harrisburg Bulldogs, right? The Carterville Lions, we go on and on. You have to hear of a sheep, right? Like the fighting sheep, really, in a lot of terror into the enemy, right? We're going, no, like, like I think of that, or, or some of you in this room, maybe this is you, like 
like you just like to trade all of your private information for that 10 question like personality test on Facebook, right? And so it's like you, you go through that test like, what animal am I? Because I want to know what my personality is. Honestly, it should be a sheep, right? As soon as you click on that and give it to them, you should just like a giant picture of a sheep because you just handed all of your data, all the things that are important you know. But like you don't get sheep in that. What do you get? You get lab or lion or dolphin or owl. Like one time I got bear, and I'm like, I'm not a bear. Like I've never intimidated a single person in my life, right? But I didn't get a sheep because it wouldn't be a very good quiz. Like no one wants to be a sheep. It's insulting, it seems. And I read, as we read this, we're called sheep. It sounds less than ideal. You guys, here's the thing. This is not an insult. Jesus doesn't mean this as an insult at all. And here's why. Because ultimately, our identity as sheep is actually pointed at who Jesus is and who we are to him. Like, yes, we are foolish, and we are ignorant, and we are completely dependent. But I believe Jesus calls us sheep, not to speak down to us, but actually because he wants to call us up to him, right? Like, when he says that we are sheep, this is actually reveal, revealing the character of the height of his love, not to merely characterize our lowliness. Jesus then calls us sheep to primarily exemplify his love for us. But he also does it to draw out and show the condition upon which our relationship begins and is forever sustained. Like, what's amazing, like, if we're sheep, then the condition upon which we have a relationship with him is his love. Like, Jesus' grace is the condition. Jesus' blood is the condition. Jesus' identity is the condition. Like, who he is and what he has done is the condition from which our relationship to him is established. And it's because we're sheep. Like, sheep don't initiate. They don't establish. They're purchased by the shepherds. They're cared for by the shepherds. They're loved. They're fed. They're protected by the shepherd. Like, the identity of the sheep is to which shepherd their flock belongs. This is why Jesus describes himself as a shepherd. That's the, that's the third, third party in this, right? We have, we have the Pharisees, the false teachers, the predators. We have the sheep. There's also the shepherd. It's Jesus. And I think the reason we have this is because the condition upon which we approach Jesus is actually bound up in his very being. Like at the core of who Jesus is, is a God who is spring-loaded with love and mercy and grace. Like at his heart, that's who he is. He's got pent up, overflowing. The Bible speaks to this. That he, he is a well of love, of grace, of mercy. That's why he is a shepherd. He's our shepherd. I think about this. He calls us sheep because he loves being our shepherd. Who assigned Jesus this task? Who made him shepherd? Well, he did, right? He made himself the shepherd. Like this task wasn't a surprise reaction to some unforeseen reality of our existence. Like, like Jesus, guys, he's not new to the animal game. He's like, wow, I've really gotten myself a lot of work here. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. No, this metaphor of Jesus being a shepherd is actually a window into his very heart, the heart of God. He's saying he loves you. When he calls himself a shepherd, he's saying Jesus loves you, that he has come for you. To the point that we read next, we see this shepherd, he actually comes to the door and he calls to you himself by name because he has made himself your shepherd. So let's keep reading and we'll see this in verse 3, verses 3 through 5. To him the gatekeeper opens, that is to the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. Just really quickly in these verses, there's three particular areas of context, I think, help us understand what Jesus is really saying here. Three realities, and I think if we can understand the context, we can apply Jesus' teaching better to our own life. So the first is this idea, again, of the sheepfold of the sheep pen. Like, like the way that sheep were cared for in a given community was that there's this one large pen, which, which again was called the sheepfold. And at the end of the day, all these smaller individual flocks would be brought to stay in this pen during the night. And then the next day, each of the individual shepherds would come back to get their sheep. And so that's what we see here. We see a shepherd coming and calling for their sheep. And this is really important because what would happen is when that shepherd would step back into this sheep pen, as you can imagine, if there's multiple flocks, all the sheep would intermingle and mix. It wasn't like they had numbers on them or, or color-coded. Like, there was no way to really know whose sheep was whose. And so what happened is, like, the, sh the shepherd would actually call out. And when the, when the sheep would hear the shepherd's voice, they would follow because they knew their own shepherd's voice. But even more notable is a really good shepherd, a really good shepherd would actually give names to each of his individual sheep. And so as he would come in, he would call out, by name to each sheep, and each sheep would hear their name, and they would follow their shepherd. And it didn't end there, because then Jesus says, the shepherd then would lead them ahead. And once more, this is so important, um, because today it's a bit different today. Like, again, I'm not fully familiar with, with sheep herding, but I do know dogs do that. And so most places in, in shepherding, dogs will drive sheep. But it was different in this context. The shepherd would lead, and this process would continue even outside of the gate as they would go the shepherd would call the sheep and the sheep would follow they would hear his voice and they would follow and as we consider what, I mean, they would have understood this i think the natural and immediate but necessary question when we actually understand what jesus is saying is how do you first know if you're one of jesus sheep how do we know and i think the answer comes in from asking another question right after like, when you hear his voice, which way do you go? When you hear Jesus' voice, which way do you run? Like, when you hear his words, how do you respond? When he calls you to follow, I mean you, because he wants you. Do you go to him? Do you follow him? Again, he's talking to the Pharisees about this. They don't follow, right? That's why we have verse 6 here. It says, this figure of speech Jesus used with him, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Like, they don't get it. They are still blind. I think intentionally by John, these words actually come right after they've cast out the former blind man. Remember last week, Chad taught, they cast out the former blind man? And yet here they are. They're the ones who can't see, and therefore they're the ones not truly in. But because they don't get it, Jesus actually then adds to his illustration. He doesn't so much change it. I don't think he's changing the illustration, but instead he's adding to it. And he's doing it so he can reveal to us even more the reality of who he is and what he's really come to do. And so I'll read for you verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Jesus said, I am the door. Like, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here, Jesus is saying he's not just the shepherd, but he's also the door. And guys, there is so much 
Like there is so much loaded in, in these few verses in this statement. Like, like first, if you remember in verse 1, Jesus already told the Pharisees that they've wrongly tried to get in a different way, right? He says they went, they try to go another way other than the door. They try to go around the door, circumvent the door, climb over the wall to get in. Well, what's important is that same word in verse 1 for, for way, they try to go a different way. In the Greek Septuagint, which that name's not really important, but what it is is when they translated the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, to have the same um, language as the New Testament, which is Greek, that same word for way is used in Genesis chapter 3 that's used in John chapter 10, verse 1. And if you're familiar with Genesis 3, what it is, it says, God drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Like the same word. It's the same word. They try to go a different way. And at the very beginning, right, the same words at the very beginning of the Bible to illustrate the heart of our problem. Like one of my favorite books for our kids, I believe it's called The Garden, The Temple, and The Curtain. And like, I'll find it, maybe post a picture of it on, our, on the church website like if you're interested. It's a great book. And it illustrates this over and over, this phrase it repeats at the beginning. Like, like wanting home, this idea of wanting to be where you're called to belong, but always on the outside. And it has this phrase it repeats. It's because of sin they could not get in. They couldn't go the way. That's what we see at the beginning. Like this is the reality. Man could not get back to be with God. And yet Jesus, he's not only saying then that I am God, because this is another I am statement, like I am the door. He's saying I'm God once again. But he's also saying that he, God, is the way back to God. Isn't that wonderful? Not only is he God, but he is the way to God. Jesus says he is the door and that we must enter through him. Guys, there's even, there's even more here. Because if we do the same thing again, and we go and, and look back in Scripture, where these words are used, I think we should be left absolutely astounded at the way that God has intentionally made all of Scripture connect together. And particularly in the way that it ties in with who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And, and just, there's several words we could have done this with, but just one word in particular is this word, door. It seems to be the most important word in this text today. Um, so that word for door, uh, maybe in your translation it's gate. It's the same word um, in John. But that word for door or gate in John, it's translated in the Old Testament as door or entrance when it's used. Um, and one of the places that's used really particularly and, and important for our time today is in Exodus 40, verses 5 and 6. Um, God's instructing the Israelites as they build the tabernacle. And here's what it says. You should put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And so to understand why that's important, I think just briefly, it's really important to understand what the tabernacle was and what it represented because it really ties in to what Jesus is saying about himself and what he offers. Like, like the tabernacle and then the temple that followed when it became a permanent structure in one place, it was a place that God called Israel to build so that he could meaningfully manifest his presence in a particular way. That's what it is. It's a place where it was genuinely on earth as it is in heaven. Like what Eden was supposed to be and what heaven really is, the temple and the tabernacle, they served as. And so it was really similar to heaven physically. Even the book of Hebrews tells us this, that it was like a copy or a shadow of what's in heaven, but also similar theologically. Like meaning how neither the tabernacle nor heaven are truly God's home, per se. I think that's important to note. Like God made heaven. God doesn't like live in heaven, hasn't always housed God. Rather, God created it. 
Like he's not from heaven. That's not his address per se, but rather he created it so that he could have a particular place where his glory would be on display for all creation. And then the tabernacle and the temple, they're extensions of this, right? In the holy of the holies that we see in the Old Testament, God's glory dwelt in a particular way. We talked about that in John 8, right, with the, uh, with, with the light. God's glory was dwelling in a particular way that it couldn't do on the outside because it was on the outside, people would be crushed. Um, that word for glory actually means weight. And because of our sin, we would be crushed by God's glory, the weightiness we couldn't bear because of our sin. The reason I share all of this is because this tabernacle and the temple, they're recorded in the Old Testament as having this door, right? Exodus 40, that same word that Jesus says that he is here in John 10. They had a door that they had to go through to get into where God was, to get into the presence of God. But this door in the Old Testament required payment. Like blood was required at the door. Sacrifice was required at the door. Each and every time payment had to be made. In fact, when I did just a quick study of this word for door, on the same one that's used in John 10 verse 7, that Jesus refers to himself as, I counted 18 different verses where God gives specific instructions for sacrifice that had to be brought to the entrance or to the door of tabernacle. And again, here's why then, in the Bible that we're told over and over that we are made for God's presence, but because of sin, we, we can't go in, right? Genesis 3, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy of holies, the curtain, heaven itself, we're made to be with God, but because of sin, we can't go to him. We can't enter. And here comes Jesus. I am the door. I'm God, and I'm the way. Like, we can't enter to be with him on our own, so he enters and comes to be with us, right? He becomes God and man, who we need, but also how we can return. Jesus says, I am the door, the door into what you need, right? It isn't a door to something else, but it's actually to be in him, to remain in him. But this is the best part about this door. This door doesn't need our sacrifice. I mean, this is why we take communion. We don't offer sacrifices to God. We remember the sacrifice that he made once and for all for us. The door does not need you to put blood on it, nor do you need another priest to offer sacrifices before it. And it's not because sacrifice wasn't required for this door, but because the door is the highest priest himself, the one who also made himself the lowest of lambs, and he put his own blood on it. And he says, now you can come through. And this is why Jesus says, then in him, we have to receive three things. Get the end. Just moving, right? Come on in. Like, come through. I put my blood here. Come through. And as we do, he says, that's not it. There's more. He says, we get three things as we go through. The first thing we saw, we, we get salvation. We're saved. This idea of justification is tied in. But he also says, as we come through the door, we come in and out to pasture. Kind of an allusion even to Psalms 23. This idea of sanctification. This already not yet tension that we live in. But then finally, he says, we come and we have life, and have life in abundance. Ultimately, it's this promise of glorification and receiving the resurrection, the promise of it. So we're just going to unpack these quickly, the three things that we receive as we come through the door. The first thing that we receive as we go through the door is we are saved. Jesus says, those who enter through the door are saved. You are justified as salvation is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Like, it is in Jesus that you are saved. By Jesus, you are saved. Through Jesus, you are saved. His blood that he put on the door saves you. 
justifies you. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Jesus saves us and he did the work and his justification is a once for all act of his salvation. You come through, you are saved once for all, right? We say that. Once saved, always saved. This is true, like, right? We believe this. And maybe though an even better way to say it is if saved, always saved, right? Like this doctrine is called sometimes perseverance of the saints. It's a beautiful promise that's woven all through the New Testament. But I think often neglected is actually the doctrine that girds it, that's the foundation of it. Like that's the perseverance of the saints, that if you are saved, you are always saved, is true because the thing underneath it, the perseverance of the saints, is the continual perseverance of Christ's heart for you. Because there, there are people who claim to be a Christian who then fall away and show that they really never were. But once a sinner is truly found in Christ, once they go through the door, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate them from him because they're his. He's the door. It's his blood, not theirs. Therefore, we are bound in him by his blood that bought us. There's nothing that can undo this. And our justification and this salvation then is our realization through faith of this already completed transaction by Jesus for us on the cross. So when we move through the door in faith, when through Jesus we believe we are saved once and for all, it is settled. But that's not the end of salvation. There's more. He says we receive more than just this. He says as you come through the door, you also come in and out to pasture. Like, what does that mean? What does this mean? What is he telling us here? Well, I think this means that in Christ we are forever provided for and protected. Because we come in and out, we are forever provided for, but we're also forever protected. Like we are folded into him. He guards us. He keeps us. He watches over us. Like we are hidden in Christ. And there is nothing that can separate us from him. Yet, I think there's this really strong tension, if we're honest, in this. Because I say that, and some of you are like, that sounds great. But it's not, it doesn't feel like what I'm experiencing. Or people that I love are experiencing. Like, I don't feel provided for in some ways. I don't feel truly protected. Life is hard. It feels like all around me, enemies are closing in. Like, what do we do with this? Because in light of this promise, sometimes it feels like we're not protected. We're not provided for. How do we reconcile these two realities? Well, Paul does it for us, actually, in Romans 8. Here's what he says. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And then even more amazingly, in verse 36, he quotes Psalms 44, verse 2. He says, As it is written, for, for your sake we are being killed. I mean, that is seriously probably questioning like the protection. Right? I mean, they're being killed. But even more than that, it says we are regarded as sheep. But not just sheep, sheep who are being slaughtered. But he doesn't end there. Because he goes on, verses 37 through 39, he says, no. In all these things, what? So we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors that through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Entering the flock of God through Jesus Christ means we are kept in him to the very point that the worst thing that can happen to us is to die, right? To be killed. It can only bring us to his very presence. Like the worst thing that can happen to you just gives you life now because of what he does. That is provision. That is protection. 
This means the Christian life then isn't something we're simply saved from, right? We're also saved for something. We're not just protected from the destruction of death or enemies or sin, but we're given the joy of walking with Jesus. And each day he leads us in and out as he sovereignly applies the reality of our salvation to our lives. Like this looks a lot like the 23rd Psalm. It's okay, I'm just going to read you. I know it's six verses. I just want to read this over you. It sounds a lot like it. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I shall live. So just yesterday, and this is already in, this is, this is wonderful how God does this. So I heard for the first time I learned this. In that psalm that I just read, this prayer, this beautiful prayer that we get, maybe the most famous prayer in all of scripture, um, there's 57 Hebrew words in this psalm. There's 28 words in Hebrew that lead up to one word, and there's 28 words that finish it. And that's by design because there's one word smack dab in the middle that's intentionally placed there. And it's one word in Hebrew, and it's translated to a phrase in our English. And here's what it was. It says, for you are with me. That's the climax of the verse, for he is with us. Like literally the heart of the most maybe known prayer of all the Bibles, that whether you're in green pasture or the valley of darkness itself, Jesus is right there with you. Psalms 23 and the promise that John gives us of Jesus here in, in chapter 10 means that Jesus, he is leading us in and out. Doesn't mean that it's necessarily a picturesque life in the meadow. Like Jesus doesn't promise us a trouble-free life. In fact, he actually promises the opposite. But he also promises even that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil. For everything we encounter, he is leading us in and out. As he does so, there is not one thing that can happen to us that is beyond his control. Like no matter how painful the suffering, it is not without his protection or his provision. And it will not be wasted. Like everything we experience in this life is to either make us more like him to produce what Paul says can only be called an eternal weight of glory. It's actually producing something for us, or it might be the very thing that's keeping you with him to finish the race. But he is good. He is always good, and he is for your good, even when everything else around you is not good. Therefore, we can trust him because we know what he promises to bring us to. And this is the third thing he says. It doesn't end there. There's one more. It says, as we come through the door, we have life. And not just life. He said we have life in abundance. Hey, guys, one day we will have life. We're going to have life, and it's going to be abundant life. And I asked the elders of the group chat, because, like, this sounds wonderful, but it's almost too good to be true and so full. It's like, guys, this is awesome, but what, what, what does this mean? <laughs> like, what do we think this means? Because it, it's so good that I think sometimes the best way we can categorize it, it sounds almost abstract. Like, Jesus, what are you even talking about here? Because I look around, it's got to be different. How do I even quantify what this promise is? What does it mean? Like, I don't know why, but I think when we hear Jesus says he has life for us, an abundant life, 
we have this tendency for Jesus' promise to resonate merely as some conceptual reality, right? But the life that Jesus promised us, it's real. Like, it, it's just as conceptual as the day that is today, meaning not at all. As real as today is, as we're really in here, so is this life that he promises for us. Like the life that Jesus promises he's going to bring us to, it's not a different life. It's not a distinct and separate spiritual life, an abstract life, but it's this very life. It's like this. It's going to be better. It's going to be glorified, but it's concrete. He's making all things new that are here. He's redeeming this, restoring this, resurrecting this. What does it mean then that Jesus has come so we can have life and life in abundance? If it's not that, well, I think before we can fully understand what it is, it's one more thing that he actually changes. For, for him to offer us life that's abundant, he's actually talking about death a little bit too, right? Because if he's giving life in a new way, he's got to do something with death because death's what stands in the way of life. That's what gets in the way of it. And here's what he's saying. In life, he now offers to make death a mere shadow. Like death is a shadow of your now secured, promised, abundant, coming, eternal life. Tim Keller, I'm thankful to be able to listen to a lot of his teaching. And I was reminded as I was studying this of a, a story that I've heard him tell and others tell. Um, so I went and read online. Here's, here's what he, he shared about this pastor who's in Philadelphia named Donald Barnhouse that, that really relates to this. Um, this pastor, his wife died and his daughter was still a child. And Dr. Barnhouse was naturally, as any father would, and he's, uh, he's a widower, would, right, trying to help grieve and mourn and process the loss of a wife and a mother and a family unit. And so he's over, over and over again trying to present spiritual truth so they can see Jesus to trust and get through the pain. And once as they were driving, one time, um, a semi-truck passed them on the road. And as the truck passed them, the shadow swept over their car. And he had a thought. He had a thought. So he asked, he asked his daughter in the back seat. He said, would you rather be run over by a truck or by a shadow? It's a good question, right? His daughter replied, well, by the shadow, of course, right? Like, who wants to get run over by a truck? But the shadow, that can't hurt us at all. And this pastor replied, right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it's only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive. In fact, more alive than we are now. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And it's because death crushed Jesus, and we now believe in him that through him we receive life. Like, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but my entrance that I go through to have his glory. Yes, he leads us. He is the door ultimately to our resurrected life. But the door that we must walk through is his death. The Bible says we are crucified with him. But when we do, when we follow through, what we find as we go through it, on the other side is sharing in his resurrection. It becomes our own. This is why we find that when we die, our death is only a doorway from life to life. And he promises real, tangible, concrete, resurrected life. Please get this. Jesus established for you real life in the resurrection. I got to talk about this with Josie last Sunday. We were talking over lunch that growing up, we both had this experience that heaven was some like abstract, like pie in the sky, like bright light existence. That's not it at all. I've heard one person say before, the ultimate hope of heaven is not our disembodied souls ascending to heaven, but a fully embodied heaven descending to earth. That's how the Bible ends. 
He's coming to make heaven home here and raising us new bodies, glorified bodies to be like him as he's forever like us. And so, because I want to keep this about Jesus, but also I think it's helpful to share. So this Sunday, last year, is Sunday I've been walking through this a little bit myself. So we got back, we drove to Chicago this day last year to go back to Thailand. Not bad things to stay there for years. Um, you get to share the gospel. But this Sunday, roughly this time, at door three at First Baptist Church, I, uh, I remember saying goodbye to my grandpa. Cause, like, I knew by the time we got to come back for another furlough, I wasn't going to get to see again. And so I went to a Sunday school class that we taught for 50 years. I remember sitting in there and just trying to pay attention. And I, I was literally counting the minutes that I was going to spend with him, you know, in his presence. And I remember walking slow down the hallway, just trying to soak in. And this is it. I remember watching him get in the car to go and waving goodbye. And so he passed in March. Um, he died, right? So I won't see him again this side of death, right? This side of Jesus, I won't see him. But I've been, I've been wrestling with this a lot today. Like, he's not here. He's not. And I'm reminded that because I bought his house. It'd be kind of creepy if I walked in and there he was. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what in the world? No, he's gone, right? He's not here. He's not here. He died. But he's alive, right? And Jesus is coming back. So he's coming back too. Like, this isn't the end. Because there is abundant life waiting for the eternity of our story. Jesus offers us life abundant when we go through the door. It's because his death and his resurrection, when we go through him, life is the only thing that we can find on the other side. Yet. I mean, I should end our time there, right? It says yet, but there's this reality of warning I think we have to take heed to because we all have this sinful tendency to take. Nonetheless, even as we know this, we take then still things he's created, good things, and we make them ultimate things, right? We try to find life in them instead. Like all of us throughout the week, we do this each and every week. We take created things and now look to them to give us life. When he says, it's only in me, through me, that you can have it. Like what we consider as real life is what we see around us. And we somehow think that this life, this created stuff, can produce a better life, a more real life than our creator. Or even more so, much like the Pharisees, we put ourselves at the center of reality itself, that, that God created, that Jesus created, thinking that if I can make everything revolve around me, creation itself, that then I'll have life at its fullest. Yet this only further isolates us, right? Removes us, keeps us from life itself. It keeps us on the outside of the very door that we talked about at the beginning, or the outside of this door that we think we are made to be inside of, that we, that we long to know. And it's here that you have Jesus calling you by name. Calling you to run through the door. But get this, he doesn't just stand at the entrance and call you by name. What does the Bible tell us? No, he left the 99 to run after you. He sought you down to bring you back through the door. He chased after you to restore to you the life that he made for you because he forever wants to live it with you. And again, he's not just standing at the door calling you by name, but he made himself the door. He's the door and put his blood on it, making the way, covering all your sins. And he's calling you this morning to move through it in faith because you believe that he is who he says he is. And so that's what we're going to respond with. This is his word. He is the door. To be honest, I don't know what you need to respond with this morning. Maybe prayer because life is just hard. And you need to pray that you can trust him as 
your shepherd. Maybe the promise of life to come, you have doubts, and you, you want to submit in faith and wrestle with that, so you want to come through him the door. You want to trust that he is who he says he is going to be a lot better than trying to make something else your God instead. Maybe there's sin that you need to re- repent of. Maybe there's hurt in your life that you need just to be prayed for. I don't know how you need to respond, but we want to give you an opportunity to do so. Um, so I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to worship. And maybe that's what you do. You just sing praises to our God. What better weekend to be thankful, right? To sing, sing th- songs of thanksgiving to our God. So I'll pray, and you respond as the Holy Spirit leads you to. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you again and again that we don't just have this book, these set of principles that we must abide by and figure it out. But Jesus, you really came. Like you are a real person. Like people look upon you right now. God, may we be strengthened by that. That even right now, God, you, you say in your word that as the shepherd, you've gone ahead of us. Like we, we can't see you. We'd love to see you, but not only have you sent your spirit to us as a guarantee, you have guaranteed to us, Jesus, you've paid the down payment of what you're going to come do in the resurrection. But even now, you tell us that you are on your throne as we pray to you in this moment. God, without ceasing, you pray for us. God, if, if we could hear you in the praying room right outside these walls, I think we'd be strengthened to lead into this week. But distance, God, makes no difference. You are still praying nonetheless. May we be strengthened then by that reality. God, as we take heart and we take comfort, may that lead us into obedience. God, if there's anything that we need to lay at your feet, we do so realizing it's not just to get in, that you've already paid it, but it's because we want to leave it behind. Would you give us that opportunity? God, may we respond appropriately. Praise in Jesus' name.